Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Tonight on Drama on One, we conclude our short season of selected episodes from Ulysses introduced by playwright Michael West. The RTE Players 1982 recording directed by William Stiles has been hailed as an audio masterpiece. Described by John Phipps in The Spectator as a rare, enduring example of radio drama as art. Before we hear the recording, here's Michael West and this week he's introducing the final episode of Joyce's masterpiece, Penelope. Hello, my name is Michael West. I'm a playwright and translator and it is my pleasure to introduce this week's excerpt from the magnificent recordings of Ulysses by the Radio Aaron Players from 1982. And so we come to the grand finale of this remarkable work, Penelope, or Molly Bloom's soliloquy, a breathless unfurling of the workings of a woman's mind, a subjective female experience to balance the objective male account of Ithaca and to pass the final word on this great tumble of words that makes up Ulysses. There are many of the things we might expect from such an episode. Feminine intuition, feline grace, shrewd calculation, and a very clear-eyed assessment of the relative values of the men in her life. But I think the scale and finish of the final result is something unexpected and something of a high watermark for Joyce in a remarkable body of work. Molly may be a fictional creation, but she appears to have total agency, inhabiting her desires and her experience on her own terms, and she feels entirely real and present to us. At one level, of course, this is an illusion created by good writing, but something that I think we can agree is absolutely true is that there would be no Molly Bloom without Nora Barnacle. It's not known if Nora ever read or had Molly's soliloquy read to her, and most of the evidence points the other way. Perhaps Joyce felt freer to write it, knowing she would never glance over his shoulder, but that doesn't seem to have stopped him from writing anything else, so it's unnecessary to sentimentalise it here. Other people's relationships, and certainly marriages, are by definition something rather strange and unknowable. But we do know a couple of key things about James and Nora's. The first is that Nora's arrival into his life coincided with the creative burst that produced the first stories of Dubliners and his first payment. His first date and sexual experience with her fell on Thursday, June 16, 1904, an event whose significance has entered our cultural lexicon. He was 22, she was 20, from Galway, recently arrived and working in Dublin at Finn's Hotel on Nassau Street. Nora Barnacle was a real-life omen of the creative force that Joyce longed for and eagerly anticipated. Within a matter of weeks of this first encounter, Joyce wrote Evelyn about a young woman who refuses at the last minute to elope with a potentially unreliable man and simultaneously he convinced Nora to run away with him to the continent, never to return. In their time in Italy, Joyce wrote the rest of the stories that were to make up Dubliners and turned his abandoned novel Stephen Hero into a portrait of the artist as a young man. He wrote his play Exiles and he began writing Ulysses. In the brief courtship between meeting and eloping together, some of his friends maliciously suggested that Nora had been unfaithful to him. Joyce famously later wrote a series of passionate, sexually explicit letters demanding to know details of her relations with others. It's not necessary to read into biographical details the motivation or inspiration for creative work, but it's equally clear that Joyce's idea of extracting epiphanies of huge luminous significance from ordinary events, the moment, as he put it, in which the soul of the commonest object seems to us radiant, is completely relevant to his method. Not to mention his already explicit intention to enshrine the significance of their meeting into the greatest monument to a lover since the Taj Mahal. The monologue itself still has a shocking frankness. Something of its effect on readers in 1922 can be experienced listening to it today for the simple reason that while reading the text is a private act, where Molly's words silently inhabit your head, putting you in her place and alighting in the distance between you, actually hearing Molly speak the words out loud feels somehow intrusive, as if we are overhearing someone's most private, intimate thoughts, which of course we are. The success of this reading by Peg Monan owes a lot to the discretion and delicacy she brings to this understanding. She's not quite talking to us, she's talking to the microphone and letting us catch her drift. Her intonation and shifting tones paint for us a portrait of how she uses her physical charms depending on what she's up against. Molly is horny and has been for years. She thinks about ways of pleasuring herself and others. She's aware of the delicate dance between flirtation and consummation 
But because her mind neither starts nor ends with sex, she simply wants to be fully, wholeheartedly, committedly herself, whatever she does. We do have to ask ourselves, what is more shocking? The independence of desire or the desire for independence? To our ears today, it's probably more shocking to realise that the brilliant actress you're about to hear, Peg Monaghan, who was a founder member of the Radio Air and Players, founded in 1947, was classified, like all the other actors, as a temporary, unestablished civil servant. Now, this was a bureaucratic designation which allowed the first permanent company of radio actors in the English-speaking world to get paid. The shocking part is that the actresses in the company had to get a government exemption from the ban on married women keeping their jobs. This ban was only lifted in the 70s. Perhaps it's no wonder that Joyce and Nora Barnacle didn't get married until 1931, 27 years after their first encounter, and didn't live in Ireland for almost the entirety of their relationship. But to return to Penelope, Molly Bloom, Marion Tweedy, is to consider reclining as a mode of thought. There is a physical rhyme of her intimacy with men, Boylan, but also Bloom, and the others. She is mildly annoyed at the presence of Bloom lying the wrong way round in her bed. She plots revenge on those she imagines have slighted her. She dreams of escaping the prudish interference of other people's morality. She still feels beautiful and powerful. She can't believe some of the choices she's made. Yet this is what is so lovely about her reverie, that she is an adulteress, a Madame Bovary, a femme fatale of the 19th century, a woman for whom the centuries of heroic narrative reserve the most extreme punishment. And yet here, in spite of her marital difficulties, her grief and loss, the frustration of her creative intelligence, she willingly revisits the scene of her seduction of Bloom with affection and longing. He can't know it, but she does fall asleep, thinking of him and thinking well of him. And part of our joy at returning to the novel is knowing that while Bloom is estranged from her and cuckolded by her, he would still love to be loved by her. And the way that he carries himself throughout the day, the years, allows this possibility, even if it doesn't bring it any closer. Molly sees Bloom for who he is and appreciates that, without apology for who she is and what she does with herself. To see... And be seen like this, it suggests, is the highest goal, a hard-won achievement and epiphany in which the soul of the commonest person seems to us radiant. The final word Molly allows herself is famously a yes. Not the yes of everything will be fine, not the sentimental conclusion of a happy ending, more a statement that reality falls on us all like this, exactly like this, the way the snow falls on the living and the dead and to hear it in the air feels like a defiantly radical act. Playwright Michael West discussing Penelope, the final episode from James Joyce's Ulysses. And now we'll hear an excerpt from the episode itself. Peg Monaghan plays Molly Bloom, lost in sleepy ruminations of Leopold Bloom, Blazes Boylan and others. And just a note that the programme contains strong language and adult themes from the start. Yes, because he never did a thing like that before as asked to get his breakfast in bed with a couple of eggs since the City Arms Hotel, when he used to be pretending to be laid up with a sick voice, doing his highness to make himself interesting to that old faggot Mrs Reardon, that he thought he had a great leg off and she never left us a farthing, all for masses for herself and her soul, greatest miser ever was, actually afraid to lay out fortunes for her methylated spirit, telling me all her ailments. She'd too much old chat in her about politics and earthquakes and the end of the world. Let us have a bit of fun first. God help the world if all the women were her sort, down on bathing suits and low necks. Of course, nobody wanted her to wear. I suppose she was pious because no man would look at her twice. I hope I'll never be like her. I wonder she didn't want us to cover our faces. But she was a well-educated woman, certainly, and her gabby talk about Mr. Reardon here and Mr. Reardon there. I suppose he was glad to get shut of her and her dogs smelling my fur and always edging to get up under my petticoats, especially then. Still, I like that in him, polite to old women like that, and waiters, and beggars too. 
He's not proud out of nothing, but not always. If ever he got anything really serious the matter with them, it's much better for them to go into hospital where everything is clean. But I suppose I'd have to drink it into him for a month. Yes, and then we'd have a hospital nurse next thing on the carpet, have him staying there till they throw him out, or a nun, maybe, like the smutty photo he has. She's as much a nun as I'm not. Yes, because they're so weak and puling when they're sick, they want a woman to get well. If his nose bleeds, you'd think it was, oh, tragic. And that dying-looking one off the South Circular when he sprained his foot at the choir party at the Sugarloaf Mountain the day I wore that dress. Miss Stack, bringing him flowers, the worst old one she could find at the bottom of the basket, anything at all to get into a man's bedroom with her old maid's voice, trying to imagine he was dying on account of her. To never see thy face again. Though he looked more like a man with his beard a bit grown in the bed, father was the same. Besides, I hate bandaging and dosing. When he cut his toe with the razor, paring his corns, afraid he'd get blood poisoning. But if it was a thing I was sick, then we'd see what attention. Only, of course, the woman hides it not to give all the trouble they do. Yes, he came somewhere, I'm sure, by his appetite. Anyway, love it's not or he'd be off his feet thinking of her, so either it was one of those night women, if it was down there he was, really, and the hotel story he made up a pack of lies to hide it, planning it. Hines kept me. Who did I meet? Oh, yes, I met. Do you remember Menton? And who else? Who? Let me see. That big babby face, I saw him and he not long married, flirting with a young girl at Poole's Miriorama, and turned my back on him when he slinked out, looking quite conscious. What harm, but he had the impudence to make up to me one time. Well done to a mouth almighty and his boiled eyes of all the big stupors I ever met, and that's called a solicitor. Only for I hate having a long wrangle in bed. Or else if it's not that, it's some little bitch or other he got in but somewhere or picked up on the sly, if they only knew him as well as I do. Yes, because the day before yesterday he was scribbling something, a letter when I came into the front room for the matches to show him Dignam's death in the paper, as if something told me, and he covered it up with the blotting paper, pretending to be thinking about business. So very probably that was it to somebody who thinks she has a softy in him, because all men get a bit like that at his age, especially getting on to forty as he is now, so as to wheedle any money she can out of him, no fool like an old fool, and then the usual kissing my bottom was to hide it. Not that I care two straws who we dusted with or knew before that way, though I'd like to find out, so long as I don't have the two of them under my nose all the time, like that slut, that Mary, we had in Ontario Terrace padding out our false bottom to excite him. Bad enough to get the smell of those painted women off him once or twice I had a suspicion by getting him to come near me when I found the long hair on his coat. Without that one, when I went into the kitchen, pretending he was drinking water... One woman is not enough of them. It was all his fault, of course, ruining servants, then proposing she could eat at our table at Christmas, if you please. Oh, no, thank you. Not in my house, stealing my potatoes and the oysters two and six per does. Going out to see her aunt, if you please. Common robbery, so it was. But I was sure he had something on with that one. It takes me to find out a thing like that. He said you have no proof. It was her proof. Oh, yes, her aunt was very fond of oysters. But I told her what I thought of her, suggesting me to go out, to be alone with her. I wouldn't lower myself to spy on them. The goddess I found in her room the Friday she was out, that was enough for me, a little bit too much. I saw, too, that her face swelled up on her with temper when I gave her her week's notice. Better do without them altogether. Do out the rooms myself quicker, only for the damn cooking and throwing out the dirt. I gave it to him anyhow. Either she or me leaves the house. I couldn't even touch him if I thought he was with a dirty, barefaced liar and sloven like that one, denying it up to my face and singing about the place in the W.C. too, because she knew she was too well off. Yes, because he couldn't possibly do without it that long, so he must do it somewhere. And the last time he came on my bottom, when was it? The night boiled and gave my hand a great squeeze going along by the talker. In my hand there steals another... I just pressed the back of his like that with my thumb to squeeze back, singing, The young May Moon, she's being in love. Because he has an idea about him and me, he's not such a fool. He said, I'm dining out and going to the gaiety. So I'm not going to give him the satisfaction. In any case, God knows he's changing away not to be always and ever wearing the same old hat. Unless I paid some nice-looking boy to do it, since I can't do it myself. A young boy would like me. I'd confuse him a little alone with him. If we were, I'd let him see my garters, the new ones. I'd make him turn red looking at him. 
seduce them. I know what boys feel with that down on their cheek, doing that frigging drawing out the thing by the hour. Question and answer. Would you do this, that, and the other with the coalman? Yes. With the bishop? Yes, I would. Because I told him about some dean or bishop was sitting beside me in the Jews' temple's gardens when I was knitting that woolen thing, a stranger to Dublin. What place was it, and so on about the monuments, and he tied me out with statues, encouraging him, making him worse than he is. Who is in your mind now? Tell me, who are you thinking of? Who is it? Tell me his name. Who? Tell me who. The German emperor, is it? Yes. But I'm him. Think of him. Can you feel him trying to make a hold of me what he never will? He ought to give it up now at his age. Simply ruination for any woman, and no satisfaction in it, pretending to like it till he comes and then finish it off myself anyway. And it makes your lips pale. Anyhow, it's done now. Once and for all, with all the talk of the world about it people make, it's only the first time after that it's just the ordinary do it and think no more about it. Why can't you kiss a man without going and marrying him first? You sometimes love to, wildly, when you feel that way. So nice all over you, you can't help yourself. I wish some man or other would take me sometimes when he's there and kiss me in his arms. There's nothing like a kiss long and hot down to your soul almost paralyzes you. Then I hate that confession when I used to go to Father Corrigan. He touched me, Father. What harm if he did? Where? And I said, on the canal bank, like a fool. But whereabouts on your person, my child? On the leg behind. High up, was it? Yes, rather high up. Was it where you sit down? Yes. Oh, Lord, couldn't they say bottom right out and have done with it? What's that got to do with it? And did you, whatever way he put it, I forget, no father. And I always think of the real father. What does he want to know for when I already confessed it to God? He had a nice fat hand, the palm moist always. I wouldn't mind feeling it. Neither would he, I'd say, by the bull neck and his horse collar. I wonder, did he know me in the box? I could see his face. He couldn't see mine, of course. He'd never turn or let on. Still, his eyes were red when his father died. The lost for a woman, of course, must be terrible when a man cries, let alone them. I'd like to be embraced by one in his vestments and the smell of incense off him like the Pope. Besides, there's no danger with the priest if you're married. He's too careful about himself. Then give something to H.H. H. the Pope for a penance. I wonder, was he satisfied with me? One thing, I didn't like his slapping me behind, going away so familiarly in the hall, though I laughed. I'm not a horse or an ass, am I? I suppose he was thinking of his father. I wonder, is he awake thinking of me, or dreaming? Am I in it? Who gave him that flower he said he bought? He smelt of some kind of drink, not whiskey or stout, or perhaps the sweetie kind of paste they stick their bills up with. Some liquor. I'd like to sip those rich-looking green and yellow expensive drinks, those stage-door Johnny's drink with the opera hats. I tasted one with my finger, dipped out of that American that had the squirrel, talking stamps with father. He had all he could do to keep himself from falling asleep after. The last time we took the port and potted meat, it had a fine salty taste. Yes, because I felt lovely and tired myself and fell asleep as sound as the top the moment I popped straight into bed till that thunder woke me as if the world was coming to an end. God be merciful, I thought the heavens were coming down about us to punish when I blessed myself and said a Hail Mary, like those awful thunderbolts in Gibraltar. And then they come and tell you there's no God. What could you do if it was running and rushing about nothing, only make an act of contrition? The candle I lit that evening in Whitefriars Street Chapel for the month of May. See, it brought its luck. Though he'd scoff if he heard, because he never goes to church mass or meeting. He says your soul, you have no soul inside, only grey matter, because he doesn't know what it is to have one. Yes, when I lit the lamp. Yes, because he must have come three or four times with that tremendous big red brute of a thing he has. I thought the vein or whatever the dickens the gorge was going to burst. Though his nose is not so big. After I took off all my things with the blinds down, after my hours dressing and perfuming and combing, it like iron or some kind of a thick crowbar standing all the time. He must have eaten oysters, I think a few dozen. He was in great singing voice. I never in all my life felt anyone had won the size of that to make you feel full up. He must have eaten a whole sheep after. 
What's the idea making us like that with a big hole in the middle of us, like a stallion driving it up into you? Because that's all they want out of you, with that determined, vicious look in his eye. I had to half shut my eyes. Still, he hadn't such a tremendous amount of spunk in him when I made him pull it out and do it on me, considering how big it is. So much the better in case any of it wasn't washed out properly. The last time I let him finish it in me. Nice invention they made for women for him to get all the pleasure. But if someone gave them a touch of it themselves, they'd know what I went through with Millie. Nobody would believe cutting her teeth too. And Mina Purifoy's husband. Give us a swing out of your whiskers. Filling her up with a child or twins once a year as regular as the clock, always with the smell of children off her. The last time I was there, a squad of them falling over one another and boring you couldn't hear your ear. Supposed to be healthy, not satisfied till they have a swollen out like elephants or I don't know what. Supposing I risked having another, not of him, though still if he was married I'm sure he'd have a fine strong child, but I don't know. Paul D has more spunk in him. Yes, that'd be awfully jolly. I suppose it was meeting Josie Powell and the funeral and thinking about me and Boylan set him off. Well, he can think what he likes now, that'll do him any good. I know they were spooning a bit when I came on the scene. He was dancing and sitting out with her the night of Georgina Simpson's housewarming. And then he wanted to ram it down my neck on account of not liking to see her a wallflower. That was why we had the stand-up row over politics. He began it, not me, when he said about our Lord being a carpenter. Last, he made me cry. Of course, a woman is so sensitive about everything. I was fuming with myself after for giving in, only for I knew he was gone on me. And the first socialist he said he was. He annoyed me so much I couldn't put him into a temper. Still, he knows a lot of mixed-up things, especially about the body and the insides. I often wanted to study up that myself, what we have inside us in that family physician. I could always hear his voice talking when the room was crowded and watch him after that. I pretended I had on a coolness with her over him because he used to be a bit on the jealous side whenever he asked, who are you going to? And I said, over to Floey. And he made me the present of Lord Byron's poems and the three pair of gloves, so that finished that. I could quite easily get him to make it up any time I know how. I'd even supposing he got in with her again and was going out to see her somewhere. I'd know if he refused to eat the onions. I know plenty of ways. Ask him to tuck down the collar of my blouse or touch him with my veil and gloves on going out. One kiss then would send them all spinning. However, all right, we'll see then. Let him go to her. She, of course, would only be too delighted to pretend she's mad in love with him. That I wouldn't so much mind. I'd just go to her and ask her, Do you love him? And look her square in the eyes. She couldn't fool me. But he might imagine he was and make a declaration with his plabbery kind of a manner to her like he did to me. Though I had the devil's own job to get it out of him. Though I liked him for that. It showed he could hold in and wasn't to be got for the asking. He was on the pop of asking me too the night in the kitchen I was rolling the potato cake. There's something I want to say to you. Only for I put him off letting on I was in a temper with my hands and arms full of pasty flour. In any case, I let out too much the night before, talking of dreams, so I didn't want to let him know more than was good for him. She used to be always embracing me, Josie, whenever he was there, meaning him, of course, glowing me over. And when I said I washed up and down as far as possible, asking me, did you wash possible? The women are always egging on to that, putting it on thick when he's there. They know by his sly eye, blinking a bit, putting on the indifferent when they come out with something kind he is. What spoils him? I don't wonder in the least. Because he was very handsome at that time, trying to look like Lord Byron, I said I liked, though he was too beautiful for a man. And he was a little, before we got engaged. Afterwards, though, she didn't like it so much. The day I was in fits of laughing with the giggles I couldn't stop. <laughs> About all my hairpins falling one after another with the mass of hair I had. You're always in great humour, she said. Yes, because he grinked her because she knew what it meant, because I used to tell her a good bit of what went on between us, not all, but just enough to make her mouth water. But that wasn't my fault. She didn't darken the door much after we were married. I wonder what she's got like now after living with that dotty husband of hers. She had her face beginning to look drawn and run down the last time I saw her. She must have been just after a row with him because I saw in the moment she was edging to draw down a conversation about husbands and talk about him to run him down. What was it she told me? Oh, yes, that sometimes he used to go to bed with his muddy boots on when the maggot takes him. 
Just imagine having to get into bed with a thing like that that might murder you any moment. What a man. Well, it's not the one way everyone goes mad. Poldy, anyway, whatever he does, always wipes his feet on the mat when he comes in wet or shine, and always blacks his own boots, too, and he always takes off his hat when he comes up in the street like that. And now he's going about in his slippers to look for ten thousand pounds for a postcard. You pee up. Oh, sweetheart, may wouldn't a thing like that simply bore you stiff to extinction? Actually too stupid even to take his boots off. Now what could you make of a man like that? I'd rather die twenty times over than marry another of their sex. Of course, he'd never find another woman like me to put up with him the way I do. Know me, come sleep with me. Yes, and he knows that too at the bottom of his heart. Take that, Mrs. Maybrick, that poisoned her husband. For what, I wonder? In love with some other man, yes, it was found out on her. Wasn't she the downright villain to go and do a thing like that? Of course, some men can be dreadfully aggravating, drive you mad, and always the worst word in the world. What do they ask us to marry them for if we're so bad as all that? Come sit. Yes, because they can't get on without us. White arsenic she put in his tea off flypaper, wasn't it? wonder why they call it that. I asked him he'd say it's from the Greek, leave us as wise as we were before. She must have been madly in love with the other fellow, drawn the chance of being hanged. <gasps> she didn't care if that was her nature. What could she do besides they're not brutes enough to go and hang a woman, surely, aren't they? They're all so different. Boylan, talking about the shape of my foot, he noticed at once, even before he was introduced, when I was in the DBC with Poldy laughing and trying to listen, I was wagging my foot. We both ordered two teas in plain bread and butter, I saw him looking with his two old maids of sisters when I stood up and asked the girl where it was. What do I care with it dropping out of me and that black clothes breeches he made me buy? Takes you half an hour to let them down, wetting all myself. Always with some brand new fad every other week. Such a long one I did. I forgot my suede gloves on the seat behind that I never got after some robber of a woman. And he wanted me to put it in the Irish Times. Lost in the ladies' lavatory, DBC Dame Street. Find a return to Mrs. Marion Bloom. And I saw his eyes on my feet going out through the turning door. He was looking when I looked back. And I went there for tea two days after in the hope. But he wasn't. Now how did that excite him? Because I was crossing them when we were in the other room first. He meant the shoes that are too tight to walk in. My hand is nice like that. If only I had a ring with a stone for my mum. A nice aquamarine. I'll stick him for one and a gold bracelet. I don't like my foot so much. Still, I made him spend once with my foot the night after Goodwin's botch-up of a concert. So cold and windy it was. Well, we had that rum in the house to mull, and the fire wasn't black out when he asked to take off my stockings lying on the hearthrug in Lombard Street. Well, and another time it was my muddy boots he'd like me to walk and all the horses dung I could find. But of course he's not natural like the rest of the world. That I... What did he say? I could give nine points and ten to Cathy Lanner and beat her. What does that mean, I asked him. I forget what he said, because the stop press edition just passed and the man with the curly hair and the Lucan dairy that's so polite. I think I saw his face before, Summer. I noticed him when I was tasting the butter. So I took my time. Bart tell Darcy, too, that he used to make fun of when he commenced kissing me on the choir stairs after I sang Guno's Ave Maria. What are we waiting for? Oh, my heart, kiss me straight on the brow and part. Which is my brown part? He was pretty hot for all his tinny voice, too. My low notes he was always raving about, if you can believe him. I liked the way he used his mouth singing. Then he said, wasn't it terrible to do that there in a place like that? I don't see anything so terrible about it. I'll tell him about that some day, not now, and surprise him. Aye, and I'll take him there and show him the very place too we did it. So now, there you are, like it or lump it, if he thinks nothing can happen without him knowing. He hadn't an idea about my mother till we were engaged, otherwise he'd never have got me so cheap as he did. He was ten times worse himself, anyhow begging me to give him a tiny bit cut off my drawers. That was the evening coming along Kenwood Square. He kissed me in the eye of my glove. I had to take it off, asking me questions. Is it permitted to inquire the shape of my bedroom? So I let him keep it, as if I forgot to think of me. When I saw him slip it into his pocket, of course he's mad on the subject of drawers. That's plain to be seen. 
always skeezing at those brazen-faced things on the bicycles with their skirts blowing up to their navels. Even when Millie and I were out with them at the open-air fade, that one in the cream muslin standing right against the sun so we could see every atom she'd on. When he saw me from behind, following in the rain, I saw him before he saw me, however, standing at the corner of the Harold's Cross Road with a new raincoat on him, with a muffler in the Zangari colours to show off his complexion and the brown hat, looking sly boots as usual. What was he doing there where he'd no business? They can go and get whatever they like from anything at all with a skirt on it, and we're not to ask any questions. But they want to know, where were you? Where are you going? I could feel him coming along, skulking after me, his eyes on my neck. He'd been keeping away from the house. He felt it was getting too warm for him. So I half turned and stopped. Then he pestered me to say yes, till I took off my glove, slowly watching him. He said my open-work sleeves were too cold for the rain, anything for an excuse to put his hand to near me drawers drawers the whole blessed time till I promised to give him the pair off my doll to carry about in his waistcoat pocket. <gasps> Maria Santissima, he did look a big fool dreeping at the rain. Splendid set of teeth he had made me hungry to look at them, and beseeched of me to lift the orange petticoat I had on with the sun-ray pleats that there was nobody, he said. He'd kneel down in the wet if I didn't. So persevering he would, too, and ruin his new raincoat. You never know what freak they'd take alone with you. They're so savage for it, if anyone was passing. So I lifted them a bit and touched his trousers outside, the way I used to to Gardner after with my ring hand, to keep him from doing worse where it was too public. I was dying to find out was he circumcised. He was shaking like a jelly all over. They wanted to do everything too quick, take all the pleasure out of it. And father waiting all the time for his dinner, he told me to say I left my purse in the butcher's and had to go back for it. What a deceiver. Then he wrote me that letter with all those words in it. How could he have the face to any woman after his company manners? Making it so awkward after when we met, asking me, have I offended you? With my eyelids dark. Of course, he saw I wasn't. He had a few brains, not like that other fool, Henny Doyle. He was always breaking or tearing something in the charades. I hate an unlucky man. And if I knew what it meant, of course, I had to say, no, for form's sake, don't understand you, I said. And wasn't it natural? So it is, of course. It used to be written up with a picture of a woman's on that wall in Gibraltar with that word I couldn't find anywhere, only for children seeing it too young. Then writing a letter every morning, sometimes twice a day. I liked the way he made love then. He knew the way to take a woman when he sent me the eight big poppies, because mine was the eighth. Then I wrote, the night he kissed my heart at Dolphin's Barn. I couldn't describe it. It simply makes you feel like nothing on earth. But he never knew how to embrace well like Gardner. I hope he'll come on Mondays, he said, at the same time. Four. I hate people who come at all hours, answer the door, you think it's the vegetables, then it's somebody, and you all undressed. Or the door of the filthy, sloppy kitchen blows open, the day old frosty-faced Goodwin called about the concert in Lombard Street, and I just after dinner all flushed and tossed with boiling old stew. Don't look at me, Professor, I had to say, I'm a fright. Yes, but he was a real old gent in his way. It was impossible to be more respectful. Nobody to say you're out. You have to peep out through the blind. Like the messenger boy today, I thought it was a put-off first, him sending the port and the peaches first. I was just beginning to yawn with nerves, thinking he was trying to make a fool of me when I knew his tatterat-tat at the door. He must have been a bit late because it was a quarter after three when I saw the two Daedalus girls coming from school. I never know the time. Even that watch he gave me never seems to go properly. I'd want to get it looked after. When I threw the penny to that lame sailor for England, home and beauty, when I was whistling, there is a charming girl I love. And I hadn't even put on my clean shift or parted myself for a thing. Then, this day week, we're to go to Belfast. Well, just as well he has to go to Ennis, his father's anniversary, the 27th. It wouldn't be pleasant if he did. Suppose our rooms at the hotel were beside each other and any fooling went on in the new bed, I couldn't tell him to stop and not bother me with him in the next room. Or perhaps some Protestant clergyman with a cough knocking on the wall. Then he wouldn't believe it next day we didn't do something. It's all very well a husband, but you can't fool a lover. After me telling him we never did anything, of course he didn't believe me. No. 
It's better he's going where he is. Besides, something always happens with him. The time going to the Mallow concert, at Marlborough, ordering boiling soup for the two of us. Then the bell rang. Out he walks down the platform with the soup splashing about, taking spoonfuls of it. Hadn't he the nerve? And the waiter after making a holy show of screeching and confusion for the engine to start. But he wouldn't pay till he finished it. The two gentlemen in the third-class card said he was quite right, so he was too. I so pig-headed sometimes when he gets a thing into his head. A good job he was able to open the carriage door with his knife with it have taken us on to cork. <laughs> I suppose that was done out of revenge on him. Oh, I love jaunting in a train or a car with lovely soft cushions. I wonder will he take a first class for me. He might want to do it in the train by tipping the guard well. Oh, I suppose there'll be the usual idiots of men gaping at us with their eyes as stupid as ever they can possibly be. That was an exceptional man, that common workman that left us alone in the carriage that day going to Hoth. I'd like to find out something about him. One or two tunnels, perhaps. Then you have to look out the window. All the nice are coming back. Supposing I never came back, what would they say? Eloped with them. That gets you on on the stage. The last concert I sang out, where? It's over a year ago. When was it? St. Teresa's Hall, Clarendon Street. Little chits of missus they have now singing, Kathleen Carney and her like. On account of father being in the army and my singing the absent-minded beggar and wearing a brooch for Lord Roberts when I had the map of it all and Poldy not Irish enough. Was it him managed it this time? I wouldn't put it past him. Like he got me on to sing at the Stabbard Matter by going round saying he was putting lead kindly light to music. I put him up to that till the Jesuits found out he was a Freemason pumping the piano lead thou me on copied from some old opera. Yes. And he was going about with some of them sinner fane lately, or whatever they call themselves, talking his usual trash and nonsense. He says that little man he showed me without the neck is very intelligent, the coming man. Griffith, is he? Well, he doesn't look it, that's all I can say. Still, it must have been him he knew there was a boycott. I hate the mention of politics after the war. That Pretoria and Ladysmith and Bloemfontein where Gardner... Lieutenant Stanley G., 8th Battalion, 2nd East Lanx Regiment of Enterk Fever. He was a lovely fellow in khaki and just the right height over me. I'm sure he was brave too. He said I was lovely the evening we kissed goodbye at the canal lock. My Irish beauty. He was pale with excitement about going away. Oh, we'd be seen from the road. He couldn't stand properly and I so hot as I never felt. They could have made their peace in the beginning... Or old Oom Paul and the rest of the old Krugers go and fight it out between them, instead of dragging on for years, killing any fine-looking men they were with their fever. If he was even decently shot, it wouldn't have been so bad. I love to see a regiment pass in review. The first time I saw the Spanish cavalry at La Roque, it was lovely. After looking across the bay from Algeciras, all the lights of the rock like fireflies. Or those sham battles on the fifteen acres. The Black Watch with their kilts in time at the march past. The Tenth Hussars, the Prince of Wales' own, or the Lancers. <gasps> the Lancers, their grand, or the Dublins that won to Gala. His father made his money over selling the horses for the cavalry. Well, he could buy me a nice present up in Belfast after what I gave. They've lovely linen up there. Or one of those nice kimono things... I must buy a mothball like I had before to keep in the drawer with them. It would be exciting going around with them shopping, buying those things in a new city. Better leave this ring behind. Want to keep turning and turning to get it over the knuckle there. Or they might bell it round the town in their papers or tell the police on me. But they'd think we were married. Oh, let them all go and smother themselves. For the fat lot I care. He has plenty of money and he's not a marrying man, so somebody better get it out of him. If I could only find out whether he likes me. I looked a bit washy, of course, when I looked close in the hand glass, powdering. A mirror never gives you the expression. Besides, scrooching down on me like that all the time with his big hip bones. He's heavy, too, with his hairy chest for this heat. Always having to lie down for them. 
better for him to put it into me from behind the way Mrs. Mastiansky told me her husband made her, like the dogs do it, and stick out her tongue as far as ever she could. And he's so quiet and mild with his ting-a-ting either. Could you ever be up to men the way it takes them? Lovely stuff in that blue suit he had on, and stylish tie and socks with the sky-blue silk things on them. He's certainly well off, I know by the cut his clothes have, and his heavy watch. But he was like a perfect devil for a few minutes after he came back with a stop press, tearing up the tickets and swearing blazes because he lost twenty quid, he said he lost over that outside of that one. And half he put on for me on account of Lenehan's tip, cursing him to the lowest pits. That sponger, he was making free with me after the Glen Cree dinner, coming back that long jolt over the Featherbed Mountain, after the Lord Mayor, looking at me with his dirty eyes, Val Dillon. That big heathen, I first noticed him at dessert when I was cracking the nuts with my teeth. I wished I could have picked every morsel of that chicken out of my fingers. It was so tasty and browned and as tender as anything, only for I didn't want to eat everything on my plate. Those forks and fish slices were hallmark silver, too. Oh, wish I had some. I could easily have slipped a couple into my muff when I was playing with them, then always hanging out of them for money in a restaurant for the bit you put down your throat. We have to be thankful for our mangy cup of tea itself as a great compliment to be noticed the way the world is divided. In any case, if it's going to go on, I want at least two other good chemises for one thing. And, but I don't know what kind of drawers he likes. None at all, I think, didn't he say? Yes, and half the girls in Gibraltar never wore them either, naked as God made them. That Andalusian singing her Manola, she didn't make much secret of what she hadn't. Yes. And the second pair of silkette stockings is laddered after one day's wear. I could have brought them back to Lures this morning and kick up a row and made that one change them, only not to upset myself and run the risk of walking into him and ruining the whole thing. And one of those kid-fitting corsets I'd want, advertised cheap in the gentlewoman, with elastic gores on the hips. He saved the one I have, but that's no good. What do they say? They give a delightful figure line. Eleven and six, obviating that unsightly broad appearance across the lower back to reduce flesh. My belly is a bit too big. I have to knock off the stout at dinner. Or am I getting too fond of it? The last they sent for more rocks was as flat as a pancake. He makes his money. Easy Larry, they call him. The old mangy parsley sent at Christmas a cottage cake and a bottle of hogwash he tried to palm off as claret that he couldn't get anyone to drink. God spare his spit for fear he die of the drought. Well, I must do a few breathing exercises. I wonder, is that anti-fat any good? Might overdo it. Thin ones are not so much the fashion now. Garters, that much I have. The violet pair I wore today. That's all he bought me out of the check he got on the first. Oh, no. There was the face lotion I finished the last of yesterday that made my skin like new. I told him over and over again, get that made up in the same place and don't forget it. God only knows whether he did. After all, I said to him, I'll know by the bottle anyway. If not, I suppose I'll only have to wash in my piss, like beef tea or chicken soup with some of that of Poppenix and Violet. I thought it was beginning to look coarse or old a bit. The skin underneath is much finer where it peeled off, there on my finger after the burn. It's a pity it isn't all like that. And the four paltry handkerchiefs, about six shillings and all. Sure, you can't get on in this world without style, all going in food and rent. When I get it, I'll lash it around, I tell you, in fine style. I always want to throw a handful of tea into the pot, measuring and mincing. If I buy a pair of old brogues itself, do you like those new shoes? Yes. How much were they? I've no clothes at all. The brown costume and the skirt and jacket and the one of the cleaners. Three. What's that for any woman? Cutting up this old hat and patching up the other. The men won't look at you and the women try to walk on you because they know you've no man. Then was all things getting dearer every day for the four years more I have of life up to thirty-five. No. And what am I at all? I'll be thirty-three in September. Will I? What? Oh, well, look at that Mrs. Galbraith. She's much older than me. I saw her when I was out last week. Her beauty's on the wane. She was a lovely woman, magnificent head of hair and her down to her waist, tossing it back like that. 
Like Kitty O'Shea in Grantham Street, first thing I did every morning to look across, see her combing it as if she loved it and was full of it. Pity I only got to know her the day before we left. And that Mrs. Langtry, the Jersey Lily, the Prince of Wales was in love with. I suppose he's like the first man going the roads only for the name of a king. They're all made the one way. Only a black man's I'd like to try. A beauty up to what was she? Forty-five. There was some funny story about the jealous old husband. What was it all? And an oyster knife. He went, no. He made her wear a kind of a tin thing round her. And the Prince of Wales, yes, he had the oyster knife. Can't be true a thing like that. Because how could she go to the chamber when she wanted to? Of course she felt honoured. H.R.H. He was in Gibraltar the year I was born. I bet he found lilies there too, where he planted the tree. He planted more than that in his time. He might have planted me too if he'd come a bit sooner. Then I wouldn't be here as I am. He ought to chuck that free man with the paltry few shillings he knocks out of it and go into an office or something where he'd get regular pay. Or a bank where they could put him up on a throne to count the money all day. Of course, he prefers plottering about the house so she can't stir with him any sides. What's your programme today? I wish he'd even smoke a pipe like father to get the smell of a man or pretending to be mooching about for advertisements when he could have been a Mr. Cuffstill only for what he did. Then sending me to try and patch it up. I could have got him promoted there to be the manager. He gave me a great mirada once or twice. First he was as stiff as the mischief. Really and truly, Mrs. Bloom. Only I felt rotten simply with the old rubbishy dress that I lost the leads out of the tails with no cut in it. But they're coming into fashion again. I bought it simply to please him. I knew it was no good by the finish. Pity I changed my mind of going to Todd and Burns, as I said, and not Lee's. It was just like the shop itself. Rummage sale, a lot of trash. I hate those rich shops. Get on your nerves. Nothing kills me altogether, only he thinks he knows a great lot about a woman's dress and cooking. Mathering everything he can scour off the shelves into it. If I went by his advices, every blessed hat I put on, does that suit me? Yes, take that. That's all right. The one like a wedding cake standing up miles off my head, he said, suited me. Or the dish cover one coming down on my backside on pins and needles about the shop girl in that place in Grafton Street. I had the misfortune to bring him into, and she as insolent as ever she could be with her smirk, saying, I'm afraid we're giving you too much trouble. What's she there for? But I stared it out of her. Yes, he was awfully stiff, and no wonder. But he changed the second time he looked. Pody pig-headed as usual, like the soup. But I could see him looking very hard at my chest when he stood up to open the door for me. It was nice of him to show me out in any case. I'm extremely sorry, Mrs. Bloom, believe me, without making it too marked the first time, after him being insulted and me being supposed to be his wife. I just half smiled. I know my chest was out that way at the door when he said, I'm extremely sorry, and I'm sure you were. Yes, I think he made them a bit firmer, sucking them like that so long. He made me. Thirsty titties, he calls them. Had to laugh. Yes, this one, anyhow. Stiff the nipple gets for the least thing. I'll get him to keep that up, and I'll take those eggs beaten up with marsala. Fatten them out for him. What are all those veins and things? Curious the way it's made. Two the same, in case of twins. They're supposed to represent beauty. Placed up there, like those statues in the museum. One of them pretending to hide it with her hand. Are they so beautiful? Of course, compared with what a man looks like with his two bags full and his other thing hanging down out of him or sticking up at you like a hat rack, no wonder they had it with a cabbage leaf. The woman is beauty, of course, that's admitted. When he said I could pose for a picture naked to some rich fellow in Hollis Street, when he lost the job in Healy's and I was selling the clothes and strumming in the coffee palace, would I be like that bath of the nymph with my hair down? Yes, only she's younger. Or I'm a little like that dirty bitch in that Spanish photo he has. The nymphs used they go about like that, I asked him. That disgusting Cameron Highlander behind the meat market. 
or that other wretch with the red head behind the tree where the statue of the fish used to be, when I was passing, pretending he was pissing, standing out for me to see it with his baby clothes up to one side. The Queen's own they were, a nice lot. It's where the Surreys relieve them. They're always trying to show it to you. Every time nearly I passed outside the men's greenhouse, near the Harcourt Street station, just to try some fellow or other, trying to catch my eye, or if it was one of the seven wonders of the world. Oh, and the stink of those rotten places. The night coming home with Poldy after the Comerford's party. Oranges and lemonade to make you feel nice and watery. I went into one of them. It was so biting cold I couldn't keep it. When was that? Ninety-three. The canal was frozen. Yes, it was a few months after. A pity a couple of the Camerons weren't there to see me, squatting in the men's place. Meadero. I tried to draw a picture of it before I tore it up. Like a sausage or something. I wonder they're not afraid going about of getting a kick or a bang or something there. And that word met something with hoses in it. And he came out with some jawbreakers about the incarnation. He never can explain a thing simply the way a body can understand. Then he goes and burns the bottom out of the pan, all for his kidney. This one, not so much. There's the mark of his teeth still, where he tried to bite the nipple. I just scream out, aren't they fearful, trying to hurt you? I'd a great breast of milk with Millie, enough for two. What was the reason of that? He said I could have got a pound a week as a wet nurse, all swelled out. The morning that delicate-looking student that stopped at number 28 with a citron's penrose nearly caught me washing through the window, only for I snapped up the towel to my face. That was his studenting. Hurt me, they used to, weaning her till he got Dr. Brady to give me the Belladonna prescription. I had to get him to suck them, they were so hard. He said it was sweeter and thicker than cows. Then he wanted to milk me into the tea. Well, he's beyond everything, I declare. Somebody ought to put him in the budget. If I only could remember the one half of the things, I'd write a book out of it. The works of Master Paulty. You've been listening to an excerpt from Penelope, the final episode from James Joyce's Ulysses, the 1982 recording by the RTE Players, directed by William Stiles and recorded by Marcus MacDonald. Peg Monaghan played Molly Bloom. For full production credits, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one.